Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. With me today is Elaine Starrett Sargent, but on the front of your book, it's E.M. Star. And so I'll have you, I want to ask about your name because we talked before we recorded. And I, I think it's fascinating, like how, how a name starts here and goes there. And we've got married names and people on Facebook. I, I started putting my maiden name because nobody knew me by my married name. So it gets more confusing for women. And they're like, well, what is my name? So you are a published, published author. And I'm holding your book right here. And I told you like how sometimes I listen to things and the host hasn't listened to the whole book. And I want to say shame on you. And I have to say shame on me. I got it. And I've been overwhelmed with some things, but I did read the introduction. It's on my coffee table as after I get through this weekend that I want to just sit and like soak it in. I want to go slow because sometimes I was like, oh, I want to find the pictures and the juicy bits. Like, no, I want to read every page because I'm really intrigued. And I'll ask you this in a second. I, I'm going to let you talk. I promise of why you wrote this because I thought you were showgirl and I love the perspective of people that weren't dancers and performers because they saw the show very differently. And it helps us that were in the show to see things we never saw or to appreciate it in a different way. And to know that other people were interested, not just those who were on the stage that actually 40, 30, 40 years later, that we're still thinking these stories matter. So having it in book form, I've got a stack that keeps getting bigger and bigger and now it's almost like an art piece of my showgirl show uh, books because it's like, this is unique. I don't know how many people have this world with this many people thinking it's important to tell the stories. So if you don't mind, I wanted to read what's on the back cover of your book. Oh, yeah. So people, people get a little head start. So when the author was handed the opportunity for her dream job, she almost threw it away with her nonchalance. Luckily, she sorry, my reading, <laughs> she came to her senses and the curtain rose to reveal the backstage world of glittery showgirl re- reviews where only a privileged few were allowed. In Rhinestone's, Rhinestone Confidential, Elaine remembers the days post when Reno was a casino town full of shows. She recounts the good times and the bad at Sammy's showroom. Be- at, whoops, as show, Sammy's showroom, I'm so sorry, becomes the new venue for cabarets and headliners. Her stories are often humorous and chock full of juicy backstage tidbits. From feathers to fishnets, Elaine's story is a testament to the power of perseverance and a tribute to the talents and stage presence of the off-revered showgirl. So that gives a little tiny glimpse into it. But first, I want to welcome you and thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Um, I feel like I'm in... Uh, the presence of great company. I've listened to almost all of your podcasts and to be here is a great honor. Thank you. I love this. Cause I, I, uh, I got the book and I thought this was you on the front. And then it wasn't until I read it that I went, Oh, that's not you. And you weren't a showgirl. And that's why I was even more intrigued. So can you tell who's even on the cover of your book? This beautiful, I'm nobody can see it. I'm holding this up, but they buy the book. <laughs> They'll see this beautiful showgirl on the front. Um, that is actually my daughter, Samantha. She is a dance major at UNR and, um, I had her pose in a costume borrowed from Karen Burns. Um, 
I wanted to, I, I wanted a, I wanted an image on the cover that would draw people in. Yeah. So, um, and also, um, you know, people might say to me, oh, well, she's not a real showgirl. And why didn't you use a real showgirl on the cover? And a couple of reasons. Um, well, actually the main reason is I can't, I don't have the rights to use photos of, of showgirls. And my friends who I worked with backstage who have pictures of them in the costumes, they're just photos backstage and the posed professional photos I have no rights to, I cannot use them. So um, I, I actually tried to get a photo for the inside of my book. It was a postcard um, from a show called High Voltage. And I talk about the costume and, uh, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, but I um, wrote to, right, you know, I emailed um, the Eldorado who um, is now own, owns Harris. I forget, I mean, or they're now part of Caesars. I forget the whole deal, how it went down, but, and the secretary is like, oh gosh, of course, we'll get you permission to use that photo. And then a few weeks later, she says, I'm sorry, we cannot give you permission to use it. It was a postcard, a promotional postcard. So, um, so I had to get my own model. And then um, the story of that photo is crazy. I got the costume from Karen Burns, got my daughter, got a professional photographer and a studio. And while the photographer was taking her picture, I started taking pictures on my cell phone just so I would have, you know, something while I waited for her photos to be done. And I snapped that photo and I happened to send it to my editor to say, Ooh, look at what I have for the cover. And she played around with it and made a mock cover and that I absolutely loved. And then I saw the pictures from the photographer and I did not like any of her and she didn't capture. I just kind mm -hmm. of looked, I liked the look on her face, just kind mm -hmm. of a little bit, you know, I don't know, a little bit like, oh, look at me, a little disdainful, um, a little out of reach looking, not looking at the camera. Um, and I just didn't like any of her pictures better. And the editor said, there is, you know, we're trying to sell books. That was her point of view. Um, because then I got a little bit of criticism um, from uh, dancers that I know. Um, you know, she's not in a bevel. Um, uh, they didn't like her hands. And, I and I'm like, oh, I made a big mistake by not bringing, you know, even Karen Burns, or, um, you know, a former dancer that's here in Reno with me on this photo shoot, because I don't really know how a dancer should pose. I'm not a dancer. Mm. And I mean, she is a dance major, but she's not a showgirl, but I'm just going to let all that go. I love the photo. And, um, I think it's, uh, uh, eye catching. Mm. Yeah. I almost redid it. I almost went and did another photo session, but then I decided, no, I'm going to go with this. Oh, and the other problem was it was on a cell phone. So it's not like high resolution, blah, 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 you know, but it's okay. You know, it turns out good. I think with a black background, it looks, it looks pretty crisp. And that's, is that from, um, cause Karen has all the hello, Hollywood, hello costumes, right? Is that that's, what this is? No, it that doesn't look like that. I don't recognize it. Nope. It was made by, I think it was, I don't want to say exactly 
because I might remember wrong, but I think it was made by one, a friend from California. Um, and it was used in a Harris advertisement years ago, but it was not hello, Hollywood. Hello. So, um, and you know, the book doesn't just talk about showgirls. It talks about, um, my journey of costuming. So, um, if it's not a perfect photo, it's, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, even like that, it is, this is not, this is about the story is your experience of it. It's my, my perspective of what was, I mean, and how, how I got started on this journey. And, um, you know, so I, I, I start with my interview. Um, and then I go back a little bit about how I got the interview and then, and then I go back even further because I did a semester um, in New York City. I was um, my goal was to be a fashion journalist, and um, that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> I did work for um, I did a little temp stint for um, oh, what you call a newsletter uh, that had to, it was more like for laundromats. <laughs> So oh, really? <laughs> it was very far from fashion, but, um, when I came back home, I, you know, I, like we talked earlier, you know, that Reno just really had nothing. And I was pretty depressed at being back here, you know, leaving the you know fabulous New York city. And, um, uh, my sister told me that there was a theater program that had costuming classes. And I'm like, I never even thought about that. So that started my journey um, with taking, um, I, I actually started minoring in costume design. So um, anyway, that is how I ended up. It's, it, it, there's a story behind it that's in the book, but it's how I ended up with, and, and who I never even knew all these years growing up here that there was stage wardrobe people. And, and I'd been to shows, I'd been to, Hello, Hollywood. Hello. And then a lot of Frederick Apcar shows at in the Harris Cabaret or, uh, you know, MGM even had a tiny little stage that I saw. I don't know if it was Apcar or who it was, but it was some kind of little tiny show. And this was after Hello, Hollywood. Hello. It closed. Um, but I never dreamed that there was anyone back. I probably just thought they magically appeared on stage. I don't know. Um, so you grew up you grew up in Reno. I did. We moved here when I was six. Okay. okay. Yeah. So did you you were going to shows? Was that later in life? Or I'm always curious the people that grew up there. Because when <laughs> I, I live in Seattle and like I don't go to the Space Needle or you know, there's things that only when you have someone in town, but I just was, you know, if you if you're paying attention, you're probably not driving down to the main casino area, maybe if you live uh, there, like, no. Oh, no, so it's no. not really part of your world unless oh, no, you make it, it part of your world. Right. It was part of my world because we moved up here so that my dad could gamble easier than okay. the hill. Cause we lived in San Francisco. Um, no. And that's another part that my book is, I mean, I practically grew up inside Harris. Um, and we also, I don't know if my parents ever took me to show at Harris, but my mom took me to some shows at the Nugget, uh, Buck Owens and Roy Clark. And then um, before I turned 21, 
um, it was pretty easy to sneak into shows. And so <laughs> all you had to do was have some drink tokes, which I had from my parents. And um, I started going to shows, I'm sure before. And then once I turned 21, I went to shows all the time. What was it? Was it, were you, you were interested in fashion before this? Was it the costuming or were you at this point deciding you might want to do something with fashion or costume design? Or was it just the, the pure joy of going to a show? Um, I don't know what finally, it started with fashion and then, um, and I don't even know why, because if you look at me now, I just always wear black because that's what we wore backstage. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, I think, you know, I worked at a bank and um, I was a secretary at a bank and it was so dry and boring that I just, I would always I'd spend all my money shopping, dressing up. I wore the highest heels I could find, the latest fashions. And then um, when I was, uh, and then I, quit the bank job to go to school at UNR. Um, and I found my niche was, was journalism, which totally made sense. I don't know why I didn't think of it earlier because I love to read and write. I'd, be, I'd taken journalism classes in high school. And then it kind of hit me. I, I mean, I definitely didn't want to do hard news. I thought that was very boring. I wanted to do um, fashion. And um, that's, that was, and then I, I knew I needed to go to New York. And so I made that happen, but I could only really afford one semester. Yeah. And then um, I have to tell you, as soon as I walked into the um, costume shop, which I never knew existed on this campus. And I walked into this costume shop and I just fell in love. There was, you know, bits and pieces of costumes in various states of, you know, being finished. And I, I just knew I was home. I was, that was, was at the, at the, the UNR? Or at UNR, yeah. You, really? Yeah, they had, it was full of um, cutting tables and sewing machines. And um, I just dived right in and, and, and started, you know, making, taking classes and making costumes. And eventually I got my own uh, show um, to design and did that process, you know, um, collaborating with the director on, you know, what his vision was and what my vision was. And the, the hardest part of this was, um, I had always sewn. Um, I was a home sewer though. And, um, being in the costume shop, you know, the professor there taught me to slow down and really, you know, how to, how to read a pattern work, how to make my own pattern. Um, but I had, when I became a designer, I had to sketch for the director. And that was not easy. Mm. I, I could do it, but there was some tracing involved and I just couldn't pop out a, a sketch easily. So in my book, I include one of my sketches because I'm so proud of them. It's, they were so hard for me to do. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not like Mist and Get, just, you know, whipping out gorgeous showgirls at whim. It was, it was yeah. hard. In this program, are there people, is it mainly people in Reno or are there people coming from other places to do this program? Because I don't know how many co colleges have costume design, costume creation. That's a really good question. I feel like everybody around me 
if they weren't local, they might've been from Vegas. Okay. Come up from Vegas to go to UNR um, or maybe California. But you know what? I started college late. So I started at 25 and everybody around me was a lot younger. So I didn't really make that many connections with my classmates. I made them more I, with the professor. Um, and she's, her name is Virginia Bogle. She's still here. And, um, she's, uh, I don't want to say she specializes, but maybe she does, but she was made beautiful, um, uh, tutus and she, she does a lot of work for ballets now. And she also quilts. So, well, so in that department, it could be ballet. Is it also like musical theater or Shakespeare or shows? Like, is it everything? Cause um, I mean, you were right yeah. by Vegas and Reno and there's all these showgirl <laughs> shows, which also has musical theater elements. It's just, At that uh, time, it was, there was plays for sure. And they could be more modern. You know, you would, you would either pull from existing stock or you would shop it. Um, I've been to men's warehouse buying suits for uh, plays, but then um, we did do two, did we do two musicals a year or just one. I can't remember, but you know, we did Sunday in the park with George, you know, all, um, I think it was 1880s. Uh, you know, so we had bustles and corsets and, um, that was a huge production. So yeah, there was, um, there was definitely, I don't, I don't want to say that there was dancing in that show. I don't think there was, but, um, Right before I got there, they had done Follies. Mm. And all I heard when I was there was, we are never doing Follies here again. I, don't, I think it was a lot of work. Really? Yeah. I wish I would have been there for it. But. Did, they ever, did you ever get to do any showgirl-ish cabaret style costumes when you were going to school there? No. No. So there's no, like, how do you make that? I talked to, when I talked to Karen Feder, it was interesting, even how we have lycra now, but back in the earlier days, Tropicana, there wasn't lycra. So they had to sew darts into the oh. trunks, the G-strings or the bras, like the darts and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's right. It wasn't just like lycra. And then the shows that you have metal bras that they put the, <laughs> the stuff inside. So I don't know where people are learning this unless they, the people are in the trade teaching it to other people coming in. If there's costume design specific for showgirl, like Mist and Get, I went and she showed me how to take the headpiece and she's got like a light bulb fixture that goes in there and you could stick things in there. So when you look at the makings, like somebody has to be super clever to make those things stand up like the headpieces or backpacks. And, <clears throat> and I don't know if that's not taught like in a, in a college costuming, like, okay, that's, there's people in the trade that will show you how to, how to make a backpack and a butt pack. And a not in Reno, maybe in Vegas, I could see that, but I do know that, um, uh, I had asked for a pattern for a G string and I didn't realize that was a faux pas. And, um, the head of wardrobe, Mimi countryman said, um, you know, those are closely guarded secrets. Those G string patterns were like perfected, you know, many prototypes yeah. until they had exactly what they wanted. Oh, that's a fascinating tidbit because yeah, if they slide around, there's a whole, there's a whole art form of how they have to go over the hip, how it cuts. It will look really awful if it's cut the wrong way. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. We just take for granted those little bits of fabric. Actually, that would be horrible if those were made a certain way. Um, you would, yeah, you would have to have a really good pattern to make it, but you know, with, um, I just wonder how shows would be now with, um, you know, uh, the internet and, I actually went to um, a burlesque show and um, I met some of the performers and I asked who designed the costumes. And one of the girls said that she did. And they're not made by her. They're maybe shopped by her because you can go Mm. on the internet and buy all kinds of costumes now. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the showgirl stuff, if you go look for Mardi Gras, you know, samba and all that. It's like, oh, it's kind of close or belly dancing bras. It's like, well, that's close because I'm not going to make a metal bra, but Amazon you can find. And some of them are pretty crappy. I mean, we got used to like really some nice craftsmanship. And so, you know, we can't be snobby about what we get on Amazon. And then nobody's making these things anymore. Right. Right. No, it was definitely, and that, you know, that's one reason why I wanted to write the book is I wanted to capture that period of uh, in time that doesn't exist anymore. And, um, I mean, I hope showgirls come back to Reno in some way, shape or form, but, um, I knew to when Harris closed, um, in 2020, not because of COVID they were closing anyway. Um, that was the end of an era. And so, Um, that was another inspiration, but what I wanted to talk about, and, um, when I told you that I've listened to almost every episode, I wanted to tell you why. And that is because, um, when I got the job, I'm in the midst of all this wonderfulness. And I'm like, where did this all come from? How did this start? And, you know, there's no internet back then. I couldn't just Google it. Um, Joan, um, my counterpart said, Oh, um, it, it started with, you know, bluebell. And I'm like, bluebell, who is that? And she said, Oh, um, I have her book and she loaned me her book and I read it and I, and I found out, you know, many things about that. I had no idea and just sidebar, um, talked to Joan this morning and she told me that she met bluebell in Paris and that her book was autographed by Bluebell. I'm like, Ooh. I didn't know that. I mean, she probably told me that at the time, but I didn't know that. I didn't remember it now. So anyway, um, so I started on a mission and my, it must've been in 99 or 98. My daughter, I think was about one. And so I'm like, I'm going to write, cause I'm going to have my journalism hat on. I'm going to write about the history of the showgirl and I'm going to write a book. And I'm going to interview people. So I started out interviewing. Um, I interviewed um, a girl who was in our show, who was an actual bluebell because she was in Hello Hollywood Hello. And um, she has since passed. Her name um, is Gail DeSoto. And I just found my notes from interviewing her. And then uh, me and my husband left our daughter with his parents. We flew to Vegas and I made some connections there. Um, I worked, I interviewed a, a girl named Heather and I don't remember her last name now, but she had been a showgirl, um, 
in the cabaret when Harris had a separate cabaret for years. She was like their lead. And, um, and then I also interviewed a male dancer named Jim Hogan. And um, then I flew back to Reno. Then my goal was I was going to fly to Paris. And, you know, I was, my, I, my intent was the Moulin Rouge. I didn't really know that much about the Lido and I've learned about it since from listening to your podcast. And I was going to interview people there and I was going to figure this out. And then uh, that did not happen because um, I had a one-year-old and I just, mm. my attention, it was just going to be too much. There was just no way. And I also just, I didn't feel like I had the, it was going to be a, a search and work to try to find these people. I didn't have the connections like you have um, with all these uh, dancers. You know, my, my connections were so limited. There was no internet. There was no Facebook, you know, how, how and it just, and then, you know, overwhelming raising um, a toddler mm-hmm. that, yeah, that hit me in the face. And so I, you know, I put the project aside and then, um, and then I started thinking about how, um, I could just write the best thing would do to write what, you know, I could write about my experience. And then I'm like, well, what is there to even write about? I went to work. I went home. What's there to write about? And then I'm I'm like, no, I can't think like that. I, I, I really needed to go back into my memory and go into detail. And so that was my goal. And, you know, I, I never did that either. And then in 2020, when COVID hit and, um, uh, I wasn't working because my job had closed and I decided to take a writing course. I I must've saw it on Facebook. Um, one of an author, I really admire, she wrote a memoir called I'm with the band. She was like a professional groupie. And she taught writing courses um, in like LA, Chicago, New York. And I'd always wanted to take one, but um, you know, it was never close by, but because of COVID she was doing them on Zoom. So I think I paid her my $60 and I signed up for a writing course with her. And um, she gave us some prompts and how, you know, and she said, what she said was, just write, don't think. And I'm like, oh, that's how you do it. Mm. So I just started scribbling away. She wanted to, us to write about our first concert. And then our second prompt, I think was um, our first broken heart. And so you, she just wanted you to write as fast as you can, no erasing. And at the end of that session, I'm like, oh, I can do this. And so then um, I started writing and I was trying to think of a title and I had, um, glitter confidential was going to be the title. And since none of us was working, my daughter, my husband, or me, we would just take these really long walks every day, um, to try to get out of the house and get our bodies moving. And, um, they would always walk faster than me. And, um, I would stay back listening to podcasts and, um, and I know glitter confidential. That's not right. That's not right. I, it, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. And then rhinestone. I'm like, Oh, that's it. That's it. Cause even though I will tell you in my book, I do write about glitter because we had a show 
that was glitter intensive. <laughs> and, but that for the most part, that was not the right word. It was rhinestones. Rhinestone takes it up a level. But yes. Thank you. Yeah. That makes that. Yeah. Cause gl- this is awful. If you've heard this analogy, glitter is the um, herpes of the craft world. Yeah. <laughs> I totally don't disagree. I think, I think everything is better with glitter, but yeah, um, it is. It's like, why is this in my bed? And it's in my lunchbox. Yes. But yeah, I think that rhinestone, I love that. Cause it does feel, um, yeah. Even looking at the showgirl that those that the bits of, you know, beads and jewels, but when you add the rhinestones, it just takes it up a bit. It separates us from, uh, say burlesque even. I don't know if you see too many rhinestones in, in burlesque. Right. Well, and then, um, I realized that I have a, a one part of my book that I, I write about, I want to write about what makes the, you know, the showgirl. And I want to write about feathers. And I realized I did not know much about feathers because we didn't have them too much in our shows. Um, the shows I, I worked were not um, maybe the typical show you know, with the heavy costume and the showgirl walk. There was definitely a lot of, dancing and um uh they were so they were they were just a a little bit of a difference there so not many feathers so um pete menifee was kind enough to take a phone call from me and um answer all my questions um and surprising me with some of the details i had no idea that um you know they were so expensive I figured they were expensive, but I did not, I did not know. And what it would, what it takes to make a showgirl costume. You know, he was like, he was talking about plies, I think. And, and, you know, a one or two ply and he, and he gave me the cost. And I think it's all in the book. Um, no, it, it, it had to be, I don't want to quote because I might be wrong, but I think, you know, it had to be like an eight ply or something like that um, to make it look full and what you're used to seeing on a showgirl. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, we, we did have a few ostrich feathers, but they might've been more Turkey feathers in some of our costumes. Can you talk about where you worked? And this is fun because you're an author because you want people to read the books, but yeah, so we'll save some of it, but at least the context of where, what casino, what theater and who you work for, because I worked for this person. I'll let you talk first, but yeah, the costume's different. The dancing's different. Cause I went from Bluebell to like Miller Reach and Gina and Ryan, and they're all different. And sometimes you're, it's more of a theme. Like I worked for Greg Thompson. It was Hollywood. So we weren't, I think we had one showgirl number. The rest is like, you are in singing the rain and then you're doing a space number and then you're doing this. So they weren't really like the, the big feather shows, but there was some beautiful costumes. It just wasn't what we assume. Right. And I actually liked it. I felt that all the shows that I worked with Greg, they just had um, a lot of um, unexpected touches that would get you moving in your seat. Um, The choreography then combined with some costume touches that were unexpected. The one thing that I absolutely loved was um, he dressed or she maybe missed and get dressed the girls in um, thigh high boots. Well, of course, you know, they weren't really boots. They were um, 
oh, I'm going to forget the word, but you know, they, they strap on over your shoe to make it look yeah, like, kind of like a spat, a spat. Thank you. That's the word. And, um, they wore, you know, a garter belt around their hips, but the garters weren't hooked. They just dangled. So as they're dancing, the garter are just moving with the rhythm. Hmm. And I just thought that was just such an appealing move. Uh, every show had something different in it to me that made me just go, wow, that's really cool. I just couldn't wait till they were um, putting in a show to see what they were going to do next. I never what shows because what shows did you do there? Was high voltage? Because I think some of them, I don't, do you know if they did like Vegas and then Reno or were shows only in this location or did they move? I know I did how uh, I got mixed up with Hello Hollywood. Follies go Hollywood and then they brought it to Reno, smaller scale. But sometimes, you know, they would take the same choreography, same costumes and take it somewhere else. So, yes, it's very different when you're getting a show that's already in place and whatever. I'd like to hear your experience of that, of costumes or if it's a brand new show, things are being created. That would- your job is different. I'm sure when it's like brand new things, I would love for you to talk also when we get there about Mimi. And what oh, that was yes. like with what, what you get and how much still has to be done. Definitely. Um, so when the costumes were coming from other shows, you could always tell because they would have, you know, makeup stains on them. And, you know, sometimes we were part of our job was maybe to refurbish those costumes, you know, replace some beading um, or elastic. But then when a few years into it, the show started being brand new new concepts, you know, maybe Harris was, you know, offering more incentive. I don't know, but they did a show called, um, uh, lipstick. Um, oh, was that li- oh yeah. Called li- but actually before that, the show was called, um, ecstasy and it was all silver chrome black and that show was incredible. The costumes, um, they, they were like silver leather or pleather. Mm-hmm. Um, those costumes just blew my mind. And then when they just changed the show to lipstick um, to save money, they just spray painted a lot of stuff red, which was oh, really fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, so uh, I did a show called Hit City. That was one of their early shows. Um, their last shows I worked for them were fun. They were, um, the early one was Let the Good Times Roll. And the later one was Rock My Ride. So they were kind of moving with the times. They were kind of doing a, um, oh, what is it with, um, Pimp My Ride. It was, it was a show, I think, on MTV. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, and then it, and then they kind of got into the country cowboy craze with, um, uh, oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the, the names of the shows. If I remember it's them, okay. I'll pop them out. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, there was, and even that, you know, the cowgirl cowboy stuff was very appealing. They kind of did a coyote ugly um, uh, number with a bar. It was just it was, it was all just amazing. I mean, I would I was just probably gasping throughout. You know, when I finally sh- saw the show from the front, 
um, you know, cause I was always backstage. So a lot of times I really didn't know what was happening while I was sewing the costumes. And then when the shows were in rehearsal, I still wouldn't see the show because I'd be backstage figuring out, okay, where do we, who needs to be dressed? Who needs help to get out on time? Or maybe the crew would be like, okay, we need to use a wardrobe person because we don't have enough crew members to move this prop at this time. We didn't do a lot of that. Um, uh, our crew duties might've been, you know, paging a curtain because uh, a crew member was maybe doing something else uh, more needed. So our stuff was, you know, very light, light duty. The, the, I can, the most serious things I ever did was um, a magic act and the girls were coming off in a box and they were pushed off stage and the box was on wheels and the stage right tech would catch one end of the box. And then my job was to catch the other end of the box. So it didn't go flying down the stairs. Oh, so that was a little, <laughs> a little bit of an important cue there. Um, just mainly, you know, use my hands and my body weight to, um, cause the, the, uh, floor sloped down backstage. So, um, get it pushed off onto a level area, um, out of the way so the girls could get out. And then another time and magic acts made me very nervous. I did not want to be the one to mess that up, but, um, my job. So the stage tech would, I don't want to give any secrets away here, but he would do his thing with a rope, getting it maybe raised. And then he would hand off the rope to me. And my job was to, uh, tie it off almost like, you know, on one of those things that you would tie off a flag, um, to make, to secure it. Mm. And that was probably the most serious, um, stage cues I ever had. The rest were maybe, um, well, not maybe, but they were, you know, dressing, um, hooking bras and back corsets, um, pulling on gloves, you know, pulling them up high onto the bicep and, um, other things to just try to get the performer on stage during their quick, their quick change. So when the show is coming in, is there a bigger crew or it's the same amount of people, the dressers that stay there, the wardrobe people that stay throughout the run? Cause it's a, a lot that first push where, you know, they're putting the show and you've got these brand new costumes. Is it the same team that's going to be there for everything? Or is there extra help because you're getting, like you no said, way. Mimi, I want to actually well, acknowledge Mimi countryman first. Cause she just passed not that long ago absolutely. at the one year anniversary and just what a lovely woman. And oh. I've seen the shop in Seattle. Cause I would go in there. It's like, I needed some, I would rent fans from her. So I loved walking through like the, the headpieces and all this things she created. So there was stuff happening here in Seattle at their work, at their workshop, and then they would bring stuff down. Like, what was that like when this stuff starts coming in and go, like, do you have different duties of who does what, or everybody's just all hands on getting these costumes that were not quite ready to fitting these people, particularly to their bodies and able to dance in. Cause there's great designs. I've been in things like nobody can dance in this. That's a really cute costume, but we can't move. Right. So I want to, I'm going to say something here. So not only was I not a showgirl, as some people thought from the book, I also didn't design the costumes that were in the showgirl shows. Um, and I also didn't make them from the ground up. They came in partially made, I'd say 75 to 90% finished. And um, 
So Mimi and her team would um, set up in an unused dressing room and our call time would switch from like maybe 5 p.m. to 8 a.m., which was brutal. And um, we would just meet Mimi in uh, the dressing room and uh, she would hand off um, an armful. She would show us what she wanted. She would hand us the supplies, the hooks, the snaps or the rhinestones or whatever she needed done. And then um, uh, Joan and I, so in as actually an answer to your question, yes, I guess there was more hands on deck because normally Joan and I did not work together. It was one person per night, but during show change, it would be both of us there. Mm. Um, And so her and I would take our costumes down to our wardrobe room and start sewing. And then um, when we were done, we'd bring them back. And meanwhile, Mimi has her own uh, setup in this, you know, she's working very hard and um, we would take the costumes to her when we were done and she'd give us another armful and go on all day, all night. And meanwhile, on stage, the dancers are rehearsing, um, um, props are being, uh, perfected, maybe being painted or, you know, wheels put on, I don't know, lights are doing their thing, sounds doing their thing. Um, and I really wouldn't know what the show was going to look like until, um, Afterwards, sometimes we would be, um, we, uh, Joan and I would take a break and we would sit in the empty showroom and watch the rehearsals because mm. it would, that would be fun. Yeah. See all that work that you're doing, what it looks like under the lights. So yeah. you also got to see, I'm assuming sometimes things don't work. Cause like, did you get to see that or like, this isn't going to work or things fall off? Or did you have those like right before or even after your opening of because I remember in in, in, in uh, Bermuda, we had these space costumes. I never was one to speak up, but they were so narrow up the front. It was like a G-string in the front that was reversed. It was so narrow. Mm. And I said, I'm not, I can't, I'm not going out. And I'm not one to speak up and like, we'll just make it work. And I'm like, I've refused. I go, I'm not doing lips to the wind in this show. This like, we're already bearing our butt. I'm not. And so I put up a little bit of a stink. <laughs> and so the other girl's like, I'm not doing this either. So we had fabric added. But when you tried it on, you're standing there. It was still narrow, but as soon as you move, like this is not going to work. And I don't know how often things like that work or, yeah, that was a good idea. But actually now you're hitting yourself in the face with your space helmet was one of ours. So there's just <laughs> things that were like in the pictures, this looks great. When I'm actually trying to do this, if we're, we were nailing each other with our helmets and there's just things that costumes make the stories more fun, but also more frustrating, more tension. And you're trying to get this show up and like, some of it is just putting out fires and trying to problem solve. And that would happen for sure. After the first dress rehearsal, that was probably our busiest time. After the first dress rehearsal, we would have a mountain in front of us. This is too tight. This is too loose. This fell off. And so then we would try to get everything ready for the next dress rehearsal. Um, And then we'd have a smaller mountain after the second dress rehearsal until pretty soon. And, and the idea was to kind of get it down so that 
once the show opened, Joan and I probably worked together for maybe opening night, maybe, and maybe two or three nights after that. And then we'd go back down to only one person. So we, we, we had to make it manageable for the one person to be able to handle all the, um, adjustments that needed to be done. But I do tell in my book, and it wasn't a Greg Thompson show. It was a different show where, um, we didn't get a dress rehearsal and what happened. Yeah. That you, you cannot open a show without a dress rehearsal. Oh my gosh. No, there's a million ways things can go wrong or no. Wow. Yeah. And so also you're not sleeping. That's a lot of hours. And I'm even thinking what you do is like very fine-tuned like you're very focused in which is different than the dancers are tired from big movements but I'm just thinking sewing like that small oh my everything yeah fingers and your eyesight and like (sighs) when I'm tired I'm grumpy I don't make good decisions and so is everybody else and I know like being in these shows there's a lot of there's a lot of tension in the air so what like I don't know how much you guys get because I know the dancers sometimes just get all the stuff and things happen, but it also changes the environment. Like what do you do to keep yourself sane and not get caught up in that? Cause tired people are not the best to, uh, when you're pushing that hard, I can, like, I, um, I do write about a time after I wasn't working the shows. I worked in a, um, a costume shop and, and, and that actually sold costumes to, for Burning Man mostly. But anyway, well, I can't sew when I'm tired. I make mistakes. But you know, um, we were buffered very well by Mimi. Uh, Mimi Countryman had everything dialed in so well. Um, I don't remember any big distress. I was tired for sure. And, um, you know, the long, I, I'm not a good person with long days, but, uh, we held it together. And, um, I have no doubt that, um, uh, Mimi was probably working 10 times as hard as we were Mm. and to get everything going, um, in the days, no, I I don't want to say before Mimi, but when I first started, she did not come down to Harris. She was still working more in the office and there was more of a traveling wardrobe crew. And, um, one of the girls, and that crew got sick. She got like a cold or a cough, just, you know, one of those things where you just need to be in bed and she just kept plugging along. And I think there was some tears there. I, I couldn't imagine doing it sick. Yeah. I imagine. I think that's where the meltdowns happen. Cause you're just pushed beyond like physically for dancers, mentally trying to retain. And then what you guys are doing that tedious work. That's just like no my fingers. Um, so we had a, the Greg Thompson shows. And I, I talk about it in the book. They were, he used different shoes, which I personally loved his shoes. And my daughter's wearing a pair on the cover. Um, I think Mimi gave those to her. Um, hmm. she, Mimi knew that she liked to play dress up because we, we went and visited the compound too. And, um, but his shoes were, uh, they were more like pump style and we had to sew an elastic strap across the top of the foot. I wore those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, there was no buckling of these shoes and we had to sew those elastic and pushing the needle through the leather made my fingers just, Oh my gosh. If you push too hard and the needle slipped, 
Yeah. It would, the back of the needle would, um, puncture your finger, like the back part and you would just start gushing blood. It was fun. Um, those are hand songs. Cause I remember at that, what must've been a Greg Thompson thing. Cause I've told my dancers, find someone to do this for you because when you have a fast change and you can't get your buckle or you can't get your headpiece, those were the smartest thing. If anyone else has worn those, you can, cause you change your shoes sometimes like five times in a show. And right. those, that elastic thing was brilliant. Yes. But I tried to sew something into that and I have no idea like how you must have to have a machine, but you guys did that by hand, by hand. You had to have Whole a, crap. <laughs> a leather needle, um, which is, um, like, uh, the edges, the, the needle isn't round. It's, I wish I knew the word. I want to say serrated, but I don't think that's the right word, but it was very, very sharp. And then, um, a leather thimble, which you would put over your thumb and it had a piece of metal in it. So you could push against oh. the back of the needle and then, um, special thicker thread, um, that Greg Thompson provide us with, uh, for sewing on helmets, like also elastic straps on helmets. Um, you would use this thicker, stronger thread, excuse me. And then, um, um, Oh, what I was going to say. Oh, um, the buckle shoes. I was going to ask how with the open toed shoes, did you prefer those or did you prefer the closed toed pump? I like the open toe and I like that they had like a metal, I guess it would be a shank between the heel. So they were very fortified, you know, cause I remember doing kick line and the boots that weren't and the, the whole heel broke off. And I think in Greg's shoes, sometimes I think later they turned into like wild pair and shoes that weren't really meant for dancing. So I know people struggled with that because we had a pair of stiletto boots that were not solid. So you always felt like your ankle could just go. So I liked the shoes that were like really fortified underneath the heel and the straps, but I did like the elastic if it, if it depending on what the dancing was, if it was a good solid shoe, I think it's when it starts to be regular street shoes that you stick that on. That's where I think it felt not safe for dancers to not have that wider heel it can still look but a pump looks nicer it's a nice skinnier heel but it's also like hello hollywood there's so many gaps in the stage that would have just you would have been stuck there you would not be able to move you would have spiked oh. in and not gotten out again um i was going to tell you that some of the dancers didn't want just the strap across the top they wanted uh x so you had to use two straps oh really yeah oh that's smart that's yeah crazy. there's just something when you just know all you could wrench your ankle. So that extra support is so important. So I have a question because it's rhinestone confidential and we don't want to give things away of what's in here, but can you tell like what some of your focus or by, if it's by chapter or different things that you focus on, because I also know, I don't know if it, because I'm, oh, there's a chapter called striptease. Um, <laughs> I just opened to that because you're also hearing all this stuff because the backstage conversations when all of us talk about the shows, we just remember like playing Pictionary and then you'd run on and do the numbers. And, and it's in a Greg show, there's no break like that. We didn't have like, you know, 20 minute acts that were happening, but there's like good stuff that you're privy to. And I know like our, our dressers were always in there with us, part of the conversation. But when you say confidential and what you have in here, can you not chapter by chapter, but what are some of the things you focus on without giving it all away? Cause we want to sell your book, but like little, uh, teaser of what what's actually in your book um well uh there was you know there was some 
backstage drama, of course, with uh, maybe some uh, relationships that were maybe um, not going so well between, you know, we had um, this, and I don't, I actually don't write about this story in the book, but um, one of our lead singers and lead, uh, one of our male lead singers and female lead singers started a relationship. And um, then I don't think it ended well. And there were some tears. And, um, you know, of course, I felt really bad. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get her dressed and, and she's crying. And then she's going to have to go out there and sing with the person oh, she broken up yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. Could that be any worse? Mm. Um, but the tap, the chapter you turned to striptease was actually, um, after the long run of Greg Thompson shows ended and Harris started experimenting with different acts, we had Chippendales. Um, they came in twice. Mm. And um, that was extremely wardrobe intensive. So um, <laughs> that's yeah. fun when they don't wear much at the end, but they do have a lot on in the beginning. Thank yes. Thank <laughs> you. Because my friends would always be like, well, why do they, why do they even need you? They don't wear anything. Well, they start, they start out with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I write about that. Um, and then um, uh, other producers came in. Um, uh, Dick Foster brought a show in, um, and then they brought in the Price is Right live. So there was no showgirls in that show. Um, but yet there managed to be some drama. And then, um, uh, he brought in shows, but, um, impersonators that would do a whole that Gordy Brown uh, did a whole show, you know, just with just him and his band. And um, so, you know, technically they probably, and and I was always worried about this, would they not need wardrobe? Because that was my only skill. I I mean, we had other females on the crew who did lights and sound, but I did not have any skill in those departments. And I really didn't want to either. That was, um, I was just not interested in that. They were going to start at the very end. They were going to start teaching us how to run a spotlight. So I went up a few times to learn and it's, um, like they told me it was like learning to drive a stick, like so awkward, but once you get it, cause you know, you're doing different things with both hands. And I, I think I did it twice and it, I had not made any progress. I, it looked pretty impossible to me. Plus the other, the way, and I, I don't know if this would be allowed now, but um, you could get up to the light booth through like a crawl space, but the most common way they did was they would prop a ladder on the um, showroom floor and then climb this ladder up into the ceiling practically, and then step off the ladder with one leg and climb through a window oh my gosh yeah into the light booth and i'm like "Mm, no thank you yeah wow no so um i have a question about price is right because it's not costumes but is it if if a contestant or host if they have a costume need are you just kind of on 
standby or they do you have actually tasks for something like that? Uh, no, I didn't have any really wardrobe tasks, a few minor, minor ones for the, um, the prop girls, but, um, mostly I was in charge of the grocery props. Oh, really? So, what tell them about that? That's, that's really yeah. They, so every show they would have different, um, grocery items placed on a pedestal and for the contestants to bid on. And let me just say up front, I'm not a fan of the price is right. So I didn't really even know much about the show and yeah. I tried not to learn about it. <laughs> but um so I was in charge. I would get a list and I would have to put those props up on their pedestals and um and then change them out for what for the, the next ones um, during the show. So that was my, that was my little job. How different that must be like the backstage, the energy, like all the way these shows, like Chip and Nails must have its own world around that. And just like the energy is I think for that might be kind of fun, but also you have to keep adjusting for each show of what it brings for you, for your, your expectations of what you're supposed to do. Right. And let me just say that some of the older crew members we're not enthusiastic about adjusting. Mm. Um, the older crew members had started out. Sammy's showroom was originally for headliner acts uh, like Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. and you know Bill Cosby. Um, and then when they made the decision to close the cabaret showroom, which had the review acts in it. Uh, Frederick Apcar. Okay. That makes sense now. Um, Breck Wall. Um, mm. They made a decision to make that a sports book and open up the headliner room and, and change the format. So they would have a Greg Thompson early show, a headliner in the middle, and then a Greg Thompson late show. So there's actually three shows per night. Oh, right. And you were working all three. Um, did you have a break in the, with I the headliner? Break. I was on call for the headliner. If they needed their suit steamed or, you know, um, a hem fixed, but, or li- a lint, <laughs> but for the most part, I was not needed mm. during the middle. So we had an actual, and, and the dancers then had a very long break. Which that could be good and horrible. Your body cools down and like, I can just go home now. Right. Right. They would do an hour show and then a three hour break and then an hour late show. Wow. Not enough time to really go do any, well, I guess go eat, make, make some some fuel for your next show. Right. Right. I don't know if you talk about this in there, but being around headliners, because like Sammy came to our show, wonderful, gracious man. There's really great stories about Cher you know, in Reno and in Vegas, but there's also people that were just, you know, you get to see both ends of what a celebrity is. Did you have to deal with that at all with people backstage as you're doing headliners attitudes or for the most part? I no, I did not. It was more the, um, we had what was called a dressing room attendant. Um, they, and I actually eventually became half wardrobe, half dressing room attendant because because they got rid of the middle headliner show, they let the full-time dressing attendant go, which was sad. But, you know, I think the supervisors mostly um, buffered that kind of a 
any problems. We did not have to deal with it. You didn't have to do that. that. No. So you've got some really clever titles. Chapter 10, it's Toil and Trouble, but it's it's T, it's like Toyland. T-O. So I'm just like, even picking things like that. I'm just curious of your process of doing this. Like you've got a chapter called Offstage, like how you lumped it, how you process, like where you put things. Was it category or sequential or? You know, it, um, it was mainly sequential. You know, I start with the interview and then I backtrack a little bit to, you know, how I got the interview, um, my start um, at UNR and how it led to the interview. And then um, I go through like my first show change and then I go um, off stage. I go all the way back to um, um, how I ended up at UNR and a little bit about um, myself um, growing up in Reno. And um, so I did take ballet lessons and I was at a a Reno studio um, called uh, Pinkerton. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved it, but, um, we moved and, um, there were no ballet studios that I know of in sparks and, uh, my mom didn't drive. So, um, that was that for ballet. Um, but I did include a picture of me because I did a recital. So I included a picture of me in there. I just opened that picture accidentally. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's cute. Um, um, so that was my, that's the off stage. And then um, I go into the shows that came after the Greg Thompson shows left. Chippendales, Price is Right, uh, Dick Foster. And then um, when I leave Harris, I end up working for um, a costume shop in Midtown called Polyesters. And she specialized in um, Burning Man. So awesome. um, I have another crazy interview, seems to be the story of my life. And, um, and so that was, you know, then I was making costumes for retail, which was a whole different thing from stage. Mm. And, um, I think I prefer, I prefer the stage. <laughs> I prefer the stage yeah. environment for sure. Well, it's a kind of interesting because you've got like however many, 10, 12, eight dancers kind of uniform, but something like Burning Man, that's not a, that's like one, like, are they, and they're probably giving you extravagant, what I've seen in Burning Man, there's no matching chorus of dancers. It's like all individual and everybody wants to kind of have their own unique. What, what was that like? Would they, um, would people come like, here's our idea or did they pre-make it and then people come looking for it? So we did a little of both. We did custom. So people would come uh, to us with an idea of what they wanted and um, it, we would tweak it or maybe do it, you know, it, exactly how they wanted. And then um, the other part of working at the shop was trying to predict what the burners would want. Mm. And um, I believe that the store owner, Esther, she did a, she was fabulous job of, um, you know, she made uh, ponchos from um, what is that fabric? Fleece. 
So fleece ponchos. And yeah. we also did, um, it, it, so if there, you know, Burning Man every year has a different theme. And so we would try to gear the costume towards the theme. Okay. Uh, or pieces even. Um, we did some specialized, cause you know, you, ha- you have to wear a bandana out there for, um, to keep the, the dust out. So yeah. we, uh, figure out what the theme is and, uh, get some fabric and make some specialized bandanas. Um, yeah. So that was, that was a whole different world. Yeah. It feels like the extravagance. I mean, I don't have any desire to be out in the desert in the dust, but I love looking at the art that they create and the, they do the makeup, they go fully in. Do. And so if you waiting for your chance to do dress up and have it be, I'm doing this one thing, I'm going to go for it. It just seems like that could be really fun for the person wearing it. Maybe for the designer to get to do things you would not get to do when someone's super, you know, we're doing a forties piece. It has to be this or. Right. And, and, you know, we did a lot of other things too. Uh, theme parties, um, uh, roaring twenties were a never ending theme. Uh, we did Halloween. People would want custom costumes. And then she of course would buy stuff that, you know, and I would always wonder, well, how are we going to sell this? Aren't people just going to buy their costumes online? But there's always those last minute people with, you know, no time for delivery and they would need yeah. something, but, you know, it was a very, very hard, um, model to keep going because, uh, custom sewing is just so labor intensive that to charge what you really should be charging mm. to make a profit. The store closed, um, it was struggling, but then they, uh, they did construction in Midtown. Um, you probably wouldn't recognize it if you haven't been here for a few years. Yeah. Um, they put a lot of uh, landscaping in and roundabouts, and we could not survive the construction. Um, mm. For a while, it was very hard to get down to the shop. And then it would have never survived COVID because there was no events happening. Yeah no parties, no, no burning man for two years. So this is another one of the deaths of this industry and an extension of like when you watch like, because hair was so if Harris was the last thing to close in Reno, as Um, far as those kind of shows, well, if they weren't doing Chippendales, it even wasn't those kind of shows anymore. Like when Greg leaves, I don't know that anybody could really get those going. I think they were a quick, quick attempt. They didn't last long. Not like that eighties where those shows would run for a while and the next one's ready to go. And, um, Um, you know, they actually had a few burlesque type shows come down from the lake. Um, there was a girl who was doing, I I think some of her shows were at the lake and they brought them down to Reno. And I think, was it called X burlesque? I wouldn't know. My, My husband will know, but, um, yeah, Harris. Okay, so Harris closed, and then you know the El Dorado still has a beautiful showroom, but they and they've had, I don't want to say showgirl type shows, but kind of they had a show there called Burn the Floor. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A lot of dancing, so mm-hmm. maybe more dancing type shows. Uh, actually, I think in 2019, right before COVID, they had a show. I won't remember the name of it. it was like Paris based. 
Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing show. Lots of dancing, some magic, I think in it, but since COVID they've only had Christmas shows like Christmas productions, mm. like maybe rocket style. Yeah. Because I keep waiting for that showroom to open like on a full-time basis. And it hasn't. I have a show in Seattle. It's called a night in Paris. And I wanted that cabaret feel. And there's just, there was a music hall where Greg started back in the seventies. Music hall is this beautiful dinner theater. The chandeliers would go up when the show started. It was the booths, you know, which is way more, that's the feel instead yes. of just rows, like in an auditorium that got torn down. So that was sad. And then oh. I'm trying to find venues. There's one place that is a cabaret feel. It's a ballroom. So it's got a beautiful, but there's no backstage. There's no wings. There's none of that. But I'm thinking like now, if I want shows to go, those theaters are just sitting there empty. Like if the timing could work out, like where are these theaters that just have all this space or this magic that are sitting empty and then very few shows. Then if we start getting shows together, like, yeah, I just feel like I almost want to do matchmaker. Like, please let me have that theater (laughs) do that. Or how do we get it going? Because, you know, to invest in these is very different when post COVID too. Like we, so you want to put some money in to have it look good, but also like, that's a lot to think this could just flop. Like a lot of things are not making it. Right. And as you were speaking, I realized I completely neglected to mention a show that did open up called Magique. Um, In it's called now the theater. And it was, it was actually a movie theater in a shopping center. Then it changed to a live theater that um, our community college used for productions. And then um, Kevin Caruso or Kevin and Caruso bought or renovated it. I don't know if they bought it or, or not, but, um, and they put in a show, a fabulous show called Magique with showgirl costumes and dancing and um I, i've been to it only once but i, I want to go again and it's happening now it's happening now. it happens every saturday night oh see that's encouraging because it feels like that, that from a yes. field if you build it they will come because like yes i feel like after covid a lot of things did go away but people were hungry for it but to take that risk and go i'm going to invest and maybe nobody's ever leaving their house again or netflix is now enough so no, to have somebody not. have enough to get people, cause we're hungry for it, but it's like, if somebody just get this going, like if that show succeeds, maybe another one, or just, you know, it, it might have to be thought through differently of what the shows could be, but it's you know, Vegas, they keep there. closing and there's like some things that are surviving, but it's hit and miss of like, what do people want now? Right. Right. And I, um, it's, it's been there over a year. That's a good sign. Other shows have performed there, like because they're open from Friday night, because Magic is only on Saturday night. So, um, and you know, it was funny when we when we were first going to the show. One of the first shows we went to after COVID, you know, when things started opening up, and my husband's like, "Oh, well, did you get comps for it? Because we always get comps." And um, I'm like, "No, I would never ask for a comp. I don't think there's comps." we need to support this, right? pay for it. Though the days, I mean, when him and I would go to Vegas, um, we got comped into every show because we had performers, friends who were performing in it. Yeah. Um, those are the days. We were used to <laughs> never, ever paying for a show, but those days are gone. 
<sighs> Maybe oh. they'll come back. We have hope. Yeah. Oh, I, I have hope, you know, because I think, I think that after show girls have been gone for a while, it's going to be new again and people yeah. want to yeah. see it. There's interest now too. in the Lido closed. I have dancers that never knew this was a thing like, wait, I just found out about it. Where did it go? And I think that people like, why did they leave? Why did they matter? And history started to be told and the people who are not really paying attention are now going, wait, now I, now I want this because I know what it was where before it's just, you know, background noise or something, especially Reno and Vegas when, you know, can you rely only on tourists or like in Reno, I love that hello, Hollywood, hello for a while. It was people that lived there that would bring friends from out of town. You go see the show, you go do stuff. And like, well, how does that exist? How many tourists to fill 3000 seat house, two shows a night? Like, where do these people come from? Who were, you know, are the same Reno people going to watch it every week? I think start small. Yeah. Um, My daughter actually is, uh, dances in a burlesque show that's, um, in Midtown and they were doing it once a month. And I think it was selling out and then Mm. they decided to add a second show and could not sustain or support a second show. So now they're going back to one show, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Let's just, just keep it that, you know, it's, it's entertainment that Reno needs, but right now they can't do two shows a month. So I was going to ask you though, I, you know, like I said, when I was wanted to research the history of showgirls, you know, my thought was to go to the Moulin Rouge. I hadn't really heard of the Lido. Um, and I know the Moulin Rouge is still open. Mm-hmm. Is it basically the same kind of show as the Lido had? I like how someone um, said this, the, the, the Moulin Rouge is not tongue in cheek. It's not quite that it's a little campy, but it's also glamorous. They don't take themselves serious is how they said their cam can is amazing. Um, and there's so much history in the theater. It's just, you walk in, it, it has this feeling of fun, almost like frivolity. The Lido is very prestigious. It's very serious. The last show, I mean, there's beautiful ballet in it. And those dancers are like highly trained ballerinas. There's a very, it's a very classy. I like them. I kind of prefer the Lido. There was just some beauty in there that was just and I, and I think that there's things in the Mulan that I love, but it, it needs a revamp. It's been going for years and years and years. So there's things, you know, to update okay. without taking away, because I think that sometimes they, like the Lido, some people thought they updated it too much and took away. And then they brought back this tableau, which was all the huge, huge costumes. So it's definitely, you go for two different feelings. And then there's um, Parody Laton, which is like, they're more contemporary with a little bit of showgirl stuff in there. So I think you get both experiences because I had not gone to Lido. I didn't know my own history about blue ball or anything. So I saw the Moulin Rouge a couple of times. Then I went to Lido and I went, oh, I loved it. But they are, they're very different feelings. And Miss Bluebell, the um, expectation was very classy. And there's, there is a lot of class in the Moulin Rouge. There's also just some cheekiness. Okay. And, and fun. Yeah. And some of the storyline, I'm like, I don't know how you got from there to there, but that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just the ambiance is very different. You walk in the Moulin Rouge and you see the, you know, Toulouse-Lautrec boat, you know, the paintings and you see the way it's decorated. You just get this ambiance. And then the Lido, you walk in and you definitely want to make sure you've got the right shoes on. Okay. And you are, yeah, you're having your champagne and yeah, there it's, I'm sad the Lido's gone because I think it's wonderful to have both. But what are they going to do with it? 
they have a, a show they're doing cabaret the show the musical cabaret now so they're going to have it as a house like a theater house which a lot of people say well how does that work because it's mostly tourists that come they don't speak you know french i don't know how well they're doing i've seen videos oh. and i think i want to be mad at them for doing this but it's also like it might work so you know it's we kind of want it to not work so that maybe they bring back the showgirl stuff but then also like well this is this is looks like it's done really well it's just that it was the last of the bluebells. That's what's so sad. Like there's no more. This was the last show, the last theater, and the, the Lido has been there for 76 years with this kind of show. But I was very sad to hear about that because I have not yet been to Paris and that was on my list. And then, you know, once I had been listening to your blue uh your bluebell podcast, I was intent on seeing a show with the Lido and the Mulan. Yeah, yeah. So I had um, forgotten about all that. And then I think when I started to remember my own story, how much it mattered, I was like, I have to go see it. And I actually made a trip in Europe, but that was my priority. I just didn't know they existed. I thought that all the shows were gone. And so just, it was this, I think I need to revisit. So I'm going to, I'm curious as we wrap up, what has this done for you? Because I know I had forgotten things. And every time I do an interview, something else pops up. Oh yeah. I'd forgotten that. I remember now what it feels like backstage or being in the wings, like parts. I think I, needed to feel like oh what did that feel like to be there and then when you're you know writing this what happens to your own memory as you're piecing it and for your own heart to to do the hard work of doing this to take the time and energy like what has it been for your own soul it, i think it's been really good for it. Mm. it 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 brought me back you know it brought me back to my my family my my stage and my crew family and then i you know i made a lot of connections um, I had to reach out with questions, you know, either with crew members or dancers. Um, and those connections were, were really, uh, wonderful to make and the enthusiasm that everyone, you know, has to relive their days, you know, even though it's from my perspective, you know, some of it will in include include everybody. And, you know, I, I couldn't have written the book without, um, input from everybody around me. And I will say, um, YouTube helped. I could, mm. some of these shows are up on YouTube, yeah. especially my one chapter that's called, um, stage fright. Um, I wanted to put some more detail in there and somebody had put it up on YouTube. It's, uh, with Sunny Thompson, and she did a show called um, uh, Sunny and Her Hollywood Blondes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw yeah. that version of it in Seattle. I'm going to look that up. Okay. Yeah. And I, what's, I could, okay. I couldn't have written that chapter without YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been, it's been fun capturing that time. Um, it's, it's a part of my, it's just a part of my life. I, I have, um, a necklace that I bought from Etsy and it's a silver bar. And, you know, a lot of people put their kids' names on it or something, but I put Sammy's on it because for Sammy showroom, oh. because, um, that's how much it, you know, it means to me. And I, I thought Harris would always be there, but, Oh, you know, even after, you know, my husband retires, we can still go back there and, you know, visit with, you know, I know we'll get new employees eventually. I mean, employees at Harris stay forever. Mm -hmm. um, they are very long-term employees. Um, 
but that's gone. So we just have to move on. Mm. I did hear though, that Sammy's showroom was going to reopen. Really? It was on Facebook. So it must be true. Must be true. (laughs) um, A politician, a city government official put on his Facebook page because they're renovating Harris and making it Mm -hmm. a new something. I don't know. Lifestyle place. And on his page, he said that Sammy's was going to reopen. So I know now they have gutted it because one of the former crew members works there and he sent us pictures, which was really heartbreaking to see. Yeah, they gutted it, Mm. but you know, maybe something will come of it. Maybe Sammy's will live again. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) The bones are still there. The place is still there. Even if they gut it, it's like the bones, the stories, it's all, it's all in there. So I bought it on Amazon. So if people want to buy your book, Rhinestone Confidential, My Life Backstage in a Casino Showroom, E.M. Star. Um, where Where is the best way? Is there a way you prefer people to buy it? Or um, Amazon is probably the easiest way. It is available locally in a store called The Radical Cat. Um, I believe it's going to be available soon at another local bookstore called Sundance. Um I can't get it in Barnes and Noble yet. Um, There's some things that have to be changed the way it's Mm. ordered. So that would be way down the road. But so, yeah. I love that. Do it on Amazon. But if you live in Reno, support your local bookstores. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. The the newest one is called the Radical Cat. And they're a cat cafe slash bookstore. You can go. I might make a trip just for that. (laughs) Adopt a cat while you're there. Really? Oh, I love that. Okay. (laughs) The novelty of both of these, of the showgirl world, and then uh, have a cat in a bookstore. (laughs) That is fabulous. I mean, this has been wonderful. I love, um, because I love working for Greg Thompson. So I just never knew that part of it. And so it's really fun if you never worked for Greg or if you did, but it's all, you know, the show business during that time, the seventies and eighties was like, it will never be again if things come back, yeah, but there was just something of that time that was just for just this amount of time, this is what we have. And it's amazing. And things will change. So I want to, I want to thank you very much for the work you're doing on this podcast. I value it very much. And uh I'm looking forward to your book. Thank you. It has been so much fun. It's so much work because I got a transcribe app. And so it gets a lot of it wrong. Like I have to proof everything. And there's one girl, Tara Scott, that I was watching the words go across and it says something about her testicles. And I went, I am pretty sure. And so I sent her the video, that video did like, when did we talk about your testicles? She goes, I'm pretty sure we didn't. So there's humor. There's things that like people that English isn't their first language, like for French speaking, he was saying he loved being a Lido boy, but the transcription says, I love being a little boy. So I have to go through, but I'm actually it's really great to do these interviews, but something about imprint of seeing it in print feels really different. And so I think it just feels even more sacred, like holding these stories and getting the permission. And I don't know what we're going to do about photographs is, you know, if we're going to be able to have photographs and learning, I don't know how publishing works. I'm like right now, just getting the task done has been really fun. Cause each time I read it, I cry in some, I laugh. I just like, Oh wait, I feel very attached to all these people that I've interviewed now because they've heard their, because we've heard their story. Right. I'm, I'm hoping you can get photographs. I know that was always, that was my 
big problem. We just have to get permission from the photographer, but some of these are some so far back, but yeah, but just asking, please check. And if we need, we'll do photo credits. Uh, absolutely. If, yeah, but if you can, I, 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 one of my problems was with um, just a funny, short, funny story. They wanted me to say um, they didn't like it. The fact that I referred to wardrobe, they wanted me to say the wardrobe. I walked back to the wardrobe, Oh, I, you know, was that I, editors or the editors public? and, and then, um, Grammarly, which is a editor. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've had to do that a wardrobe and there's other words that they'd want to take out or out of them. Like, no, it's, there is a language that is ours. And if you take that out, it's, that's, it's not the right word. That is right. so interesting. Yeah. Right. I to the wardrobe. That means you're going to your armoire. Yeah. Something. Yeah. We didn't call it. was just called wardrobe. And then yeah. me and Joan were just referred to as wardrobe, you know, take it to wardrobe, which could either mean yeah. space or the people. Yeah. So there's some of those nuances. And then to my horror, um, autocorrect, uh, changed Sammy Davis jr. To Sammy David jr. And one of my earlier, um, one of my friends who did a lot of the proofreading for me before I actually sent it to an editor, Thank God she caught that. That would have been so embarrassing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's Sammy's room. Sammy David. Yeah. So <laughs> um, friends, um, proofreading is always good. Yeah. If you have. Yeah, I sent it to, yeah. I have, and it came in this little massive yeah. and they keep sending me to get to it. And then they saw, so I was putting it all in one file. So I'm putting it in separate files because I'm just like, I'm learning all these things like pages and all that. So they can read one at a time. And I also put the picture with it. So when they're reading, it's kind of nice to know this is the face that goes with it, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. That's why I asked like to go through with it. You have to really want to do it. And you know, I started and I was doing a little bit. Now I'm like obsessed of like, I'm going to get three done today. Like as far as proofing and, and uh, transcribing it and then sending it and have them, they find problems. Do you put quotations in if there's still like a long, long paragraph of conversation so the grammar part of it or the transcribe doesn't really know where the comments are sometimes, or it makes up new words. <laughs> so. Right. Well, this is, it's going to be a really valuable source of information. I can't wait. I can't uh, cover yet. Yeah. No, I have no idea. I start to think I'm like, no, just focus on this. Um, yeah. Cover title. Not so sure yet, but it, that part will be really fun. But yeah, it's um, the I people who are I love your logo for the podcast. My daughter, see, we got our daughters on both. My daughter designed that and she just looked at some pictures and, and came up with that. And so she also did my cabaret one with the showgirls. So she's, you know what? Mm. Every time I see that, it catches my eye. I see it on Facebook. Really? I, like, I want to go to that. Yeah. Yay. I'll get it back up. <sighs> yeah. We're going to try to get, get it somewhat consistent. Cause I've been losing massive amount of money on it because <laughs> we've kind of like the, like your daughter if you add that second show the first time you got a lot of people and then when you do too many you spread it out too thin and then you're you don't have enough audience members so you're learning but i got great costumes a lot of them are from mist and get like i went to vegas and loaded up a suitcase and bought some stuff from her oh uh, i've got some greg thompson stuff that i got from nicolette if you worked with her um mist and get i'm going to vegas she goes bring a suitcase i've got more stuff so I have all these gorgeous costumes in a, in a closet at my studio. I'm like, we got to get these on stage. And people, oh, absolutely. And people here aren't used to that. Like nobody, nobody's used to that. So we did a gig for New Year's Eve and the girls came out in these costumes that were missed and gets huge headpieces. And everybody went, oh, because I'm just used to seeing it now, but I forgot these people haven't seen this. They don't oh. only walk in a New Year's party with full on showgirl headdresses. And so it's kind of fun to see the reaction. Like 
okay, we have to bring the sparkle back to life because we've been through pandemic and Netflix and, you know, sourdough starter and all whatever things. Yeah, we've been no, there, there will be a place and a time. This will come back. I have yeah. faith. It's yeah. too fabulous not to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We just have to let people get a little teaser. That's a teaser. That's your book. That was a teaser. Read the book, which I'm going to do cover to cover, you know, really soak it in and take my time. And and now after interviewing you, it's going to be really fun to read it with that lens, uh, like hearing it in your, in your, the context of what I've heard. Oh, thank so you. best to you. And then I'll just kind of check in and see, and then you can let us know how your book sales are going, but a lot of uh, dancers support other dancers or wardrobe or whoever's writing this because we want we want these stories and we want to support within the community. I definitely have gotten a lot of support from the community. I think I, I I'm not even sure what how many non-sale or non-performers have been sales, you know. Yeah. Has, has the average well like my daughter's friend bought it, you know, but um there's definitely been immense support. And um I am I just finished a book that you actually recommended on your podcast called Bluebell Girl. Oh uh, yeah. I want to give a, a lot of humor in there. <laughs> yeah. That, that was amazing. Um her story is a roller coaster ride. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, keep on promoting the books. I love it. I and like I said, I'm I'm really looking forward to yours. Yay. Thank you. Then we can say we're authors. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Best to you, Elaine. This was really great. And take care of yourself. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye -bye. Bye.